Welcome to the August 18th, 2020 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, with a quick overview of what's new in the journal in the two weeks since our last podcast. Unfortunately, what's not new is the COVID-19 pandemic. More than seven months since the first documented case in the U.S., and we're still in the thick of it, and many of the articles I'm going to highlight relate to COVID-19. In the first article I'll mention, researchers from Eichen School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and the VA New York Harbor Healthcare System analyzed Veterans Administration data to describe changes in the number of in-person, telephone, and video visits during the initial 10 weeks of the COVID-19 pandemic, both overall and stratified by clinic. They found that there were more than 10 million fewer in-person visits to VA outpatient facilities during the initial 10 weeks of the COVID-19 pandemic compared to the preceding 10 weeks. They noted that the 56% decline in in-person visits was partly offset by a more than two-fold increase in the number of telephone and video visits, but overall there was still a 30% decline in the number of outpatient visits. In an accompanying editorial, Drs. Carolyn Clancy and Susan Kirsch write about how the findings of this study provide a starting point for understanding how to optimize the virtual visit experience. Some patients with COVID-19 experience neurological symptoms. These symptoms could be caused by viral infection of nerve cells, but the possibility exists that these symptoms might be produced by autoimmune mechanisms. In the next article, researchers from Catania, Italy, described three cases where patients without previous neurologic or autoimmune disorders were diagnosed with myasthenia gravis after the onset of COVID-19. In the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, it's important not to lose sight of another U.S. health scourge, opioid misuse. Next is a study of deaths attributed to out-of-hospital cardiac arrest during a seven-year period in San Francisco that found that more than one in six of those deaths were actually from occult overdose. Most of the occult overdose deaths involved multiple drugs, including opioids, and approximately one half of intoxicants were prescribed by a physician. These findings suggest that published national overdose mortality estimates may be substantial underestimates due to overdose death being misclassified as sudden cardiac death without postmortem toxicology analysis. As routine outpatient physician visits continue to take place via telemedicine, physicians are faced with the challenge of providing quality care to older patients who may have difficulty with technology, hearing loss, and other impairments. Annals published a commentary by physicians at Johns Hopkins University that offers practical recommendations to help clinicians effectively connect virtually with patients, regardless of their hearing status, health, or comfort with technology. Their telemedicine communication checklist suggests that before the encounter, clinicians should establish patient preferences regarding format and access to technology. Clinicians should assume that all older patients have some degree of hearing loss and request that they wear a headset. They should also make sure that they are conducting the encounter in good lighting so that the patient can see the physician's face. If possible, captions should be turned on and clinicians should look for cues that the patient is not following the conversation throughout the encounter so that adjustments can be made. After the encounter, the clinician should follow up with a detailed summary of key points and instructions. Next is a case report in which rituximab successfully treated a newly acquired case of chylomicronemia caused by a lipoprotein binding protein, 
patient, a 27-year-old woman with unexplained chylomicronemia, was being investigated for the underlying cause. She had a history of antiphospholipid syndrome, Graves' disease, and myocarditis. She previously had a cerebral venous sinus thrombosis and had no family history of adiposity, diabetes, autoimmune disease, or hyperlipidemia. Treatment with lipid-lowering drugs, plasma exchanges, and immunosorptions were not helpful. The physicians initiated treatment with rituximab, which is often used to treat autoimmune diseases. The treatment resulted in disappearance of the autoantibodies and normalization of serum triglyceride levels. The association of obesity with severe disease and poor outcomes of COVID-19 is increasingly recognized, but it's unclear if the risk is due to obesity itself or other factors associated with obesity, such as comorbid conditions or inflammation. The next article adds to what we know from other recent studies published in Annals and elsewhere about obesity and COVID-19. Researchers studied health records for more than 6,900 patients treated for COVID-19 in the Kaiser Permanente Southern California Healthcare System from February to May 2020 to determine the association between obesity and death from COVID-19. The obesity risk was adjusted for common comorbidities, including diabetes, hypertension, heart failure, myocardial infarction, and chronic lung or renal disease, which themselves are risk factors for poor outcomes in COVID-19. The study also took into account when SARS-CoV-2 was detected. The researchers found that patients in the highest BMI group were four times as likely to die within 21 days of being diagnosed with COVID-19 as those with normal BMI. Men and those younger than 60 years who had a high BMI were at particularly high risk for death. According to the researchers, identifying obesity as an independent risk factor is important so that patients with obesity can take extra precautions to avoid infection, and healthcare providers and public health officials can consider this when providing care and making public health decisions. Dr. David Cass, the author of an accompanying editorial, suggests that these findings, in addition to prior research, should put to rest any notion that obesity is common in severe COVID-19 just because it is common in the overall population. He believes that these data show that obesity is an important independent risk factor for serious COVID-19 disease and that the risks are higher in younger patients. He speculates that this may not be because obesity is particularly damaging at young ages, but rather that the comorbidities that evolve later in life take over as dominant risk factors. That males are particularly affected may reflect the greater visceral adiposity over females. The next article provides interesting information about the risk of transmission of SARS-CoV-2 during various types of contact that can help inform behaviors to avoid transmission. Researchers from Southern Medical University in Gangzhou, China, traced 3,410 close contacts of 391 COVID-19 index cases between January and March 2020 to evaluate the risk for disease transmission in different settings. Among the close contacts, about 4% became infected and about 6% were asymptomatic. Of the symptomatic cases, about 17% were defined as mild, 73% as moderate, and about 10% as severe. The transmission rate was about 10% in household contacts and about 1% in healthcare contacts. In comparison, only 0.1% of contacts in the setting of public transportation developed infection. The researchers also found that patients with more clinically severe disease were more likely to infect their close contacts 
there were less severe index cases, and asymptomatic cases were the least likely to infect close contacts. Manifestation of certain symptoms, such as productive cough in index cases, was also associated with an increased risk for infection in their close contacts. On August 17th, the American College of Physicians and the American Academy of Family Physicians released a new clinical guideline recommending that physicians treat acute pain from non-low back musculoskeletal injuries with topical NSAIDs as first-line therapy. Annals published the guideline and the evidence review on which it is based. This guideline focused on non-low back pain since low back pain has been specifically addressed in other guidelines. The evidence shows that topical NSAIDs were among the most effective for pain reduction, improving physical function, and treatment satisfaction, and they were not associated with substantial harms. The guideline also suggests that oral NSAIDs, acetaminophen, specific acupuncture, or transcutaneous nerve stimulation can be effective treatments and suggest against using opioids, including tramadol, except in cases of severe injury or intolerance of first-line therapies. Musculoskeletal injuries, including ankle, neck, and knee injuries, are common and most frequently treated in outpatient settings. In 2010, they accounted for more than 65 million healthcare visits in the U.S., and of injuries that were treated in a physician's office, four out of five were musculoskeletal. The estimated annual cost of treating musculoskeletal injuries was $176.1 billion in 2010. So this guideline is important. Next are two articles reporting studies of longer-term outcomes following bariatric surgery. In the first of the two studies, researchers from McMaster University and St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton, Ontario, studied adults with moderate to severe obesity who had weight loss surgery and a matched cohort who were eligible for surgery but did not have it from 2010 to 2016 in Ontario to compare the risk for dying over the long term between the two groups. They also examined whether the age, gender, and BMI at the time of surgery had any impact on survival. After a median follow-up of almost five years, the researchers found that the overall mortality rate was 1.4% in the surgery group and 2.5% in the non-surgery group, with a lower adjusted hazard ratio of all-cause all mortality. The difference in mortality risk was substantial among older adults and those who were more obese when they had bariatric surgery. After measurable differences between patients who had surgery and those who didn't were accounted for, patients aged 55 years or older had a 40% lower risk for dying than matched patients who didn't have surgery. Men and women derived essentially equal benefit. According to the researchers, their study provides one of the most complete pictures of the association between bariatric surgery and mortality by delineating the specific effects among several important patient subgroups. In the second study, researchers from Brazil studied 100 men and women aged 18 to 65 years with mild to moderate obesity and hypertension to determine the effectiveness of bariatric surgery and lifestyle counseling in reducing the need for blood pressure medication. All of the participants took at least two hypertension medications at the start of the trial. Participants were randomly assigned to receive either weight loss surgery and lifestyle counseling or lifestyle counseling without surgery. Both groups also received standard medical treatment for hypertension. Participants received their assigned treatment and blood pressure medication used blood pressure readings and other laboratory markers were monitored for three years. The researchers found that participants who were assigned to receive surgery reduced the number of blood pressure medications they were taking, 
The typical participant in the weight loss surgery group took one blood pressure medication after three years, whereas the typical participant in the non-surgery group took three. Blood pressure control was similar in the two groups, but 35% of patients who had bariatric surgery were free of medication with controlled blood pressure compared to only 18% of the non-surgery group. According to the researchers, bariatric surgery may be an attractive option for patients with difficult-to-treat hypertension or for whom non-adherence to medical therapy and its related consequences are major concern. In an accompanying editorial, Annals Deputy Editor Dr. Christina Wee writes, quote, Taken together, these studies lend greater support for RU&Y gastric bypass as a treatment option for obesity, particularly for middle-aged and older adults. However, it is important to recognize that early intervention with bariatric surgery is not necessarily better than careful stepwise approach to managing the cardiometabolic consequences of obesity, end quote. Next is a report of a patient with gut fermentation syndrome who was successfully treated with fecal microbiota transplantation after failing traditional therapy. Gut fermentation syndrome, also known as Brewery syndrome, is a rare condition in which the body produces ethanol in the gut after carbohydrate-rich meals. The condition is problematic because it leads to elevated blood levels, feeling of drunkenness, variably disturbed liver function, and other indications of ethanol toxication. The authors described the case of a 47-year-old man who had intermittent episodes of feeling drunk during the previous two months, even when he had not consumed any alcohol. After a series of tests ruled out other conditions, the clinicians suspected gut fermentation syndrome. The patient was prescribed a low-carbohydrate diet and antimycotic drugs, but continued to show signs of alcohol intoxication despite not consuming any alcohol. The clinicians proposed fecal microbiota transplantation, after which symptoms disappeared immediately. The man regained his normal carbohydrate-rich diet and reported drinking on occasion. The successful outcome lasted at least until the latest follow-up of 34 months. The researchers suggest that these findings present a new option for other patients with difficult-to-treat gut fermentation syndrome. Other new annals content includes an episode of Annals Consult Guys that discusses the use of a short course of steroids for a patient with cough an Annals on Call episode in which Dr. Center discusses the challenges of diagnosing COVID-19 with Dr. Jean Marazzo, a new Annals graphic medicine feature, and an On Being a Doctor essay. In this essay, the physician describes her harrowing experience of being ill with COVID-19, but not ill enough to be hospitalized. Finally, the latest Annals for Hospitals feature is available on annals.org. In addition to highlights of Annals articles of particular relevance to hospital medicine, there's a commentary about realizing the promises of hospital electronic order sets. That brings me to the end of this podcast. Stay well, and I hope you'll take some time to go to annals.org and delve into some of the new material I've highlighted here. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.